Welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm Warren Coughlin, founder of this podcast and business coach to ethical entrepreneurs who want to build a business that matters. In short, I help you end chaos and gain control over your business so that you predictably and reliably achieve the profits, the lifestyle, and the impact you strive for through a team you can trust without the stress and frustration. When you experience this, you're more confidently able to make the world or just your corner of it a bit of a better place. At The Spotlight, we believe that every entrepreneur has a unique message that can positively impact the world and inspire others to do the same. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm your host, Warren Coughlin. I'm really excited about today's conversation. It's going to be super interesting. Uh, Roy Osing is a very, very interesting person. He was the president of a large data analytics and internet company in Canada known as TELUS Advanced Communications. He took that business to $1 billion in revenue. Uh, he was also the chief marketing officer for TELUS. He's now president of Brilliance for Business. He's an author, blogger, teacher, mentor, advisor. He's got just a ton of wisdom to share. He's just released a book. It's available at Be Different or Be Dead, which is, or sorry, Be Different or Be Dead.com. And so true to his brand of Be Different, this episode will be a little bit different than some of the others on this show. We're going to dive in probably deeper into some pretty important, but often not adequately addressed areas of business. So welcome to the show, Roy. I'm really glad to have you. Thanks, uh, Warren. Delighted to be here and, and grateful to have a chance to share the stuff that worked for me with your audience. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So before we dive into it, just give us a little bit of your background, like your pre-president days. What was your experience that, A, got you ready and able to take the helm of such a big organization and initiative, although it wasn't big when it started, but and B, taught or inspired you to be that audacious that with some of the things we're going to be talking about. Like, what was your prehistory? Yeah, yeah sure. So I, I joined what was then BC Tell, my goodness, back in the day when I got out of university and stayed with that business through its successor, Telus, etc. And those were the days when the telecom world was about and poised to go through a significant change called competition. And it occurred to me very early on that um, there were some things that we needed to do differently in order to, to actually survive and thrive in that new world. Because prior to the, to, to the competitive piece, I mean, we were taking orders and we were engineering dominated, not that there's anything wrong with that, but heavy onto that. The culture was about voice, et cetera. And, and my, my reasoning was we needed to, to do more than just a shift. We need to break away from tradition and take on some new things, build a new culture, build a more of a marketing and customer service uh, thrust, et cetera, et cetera. And so that sort of started me on this whole thing of looking at things differently. And, and I stayed with that. It became my journey essentially through around and up the organization uh, to the point where um, you know, it was a bit uncomfortable. We can talk about that if you want. It was uncomfortable because I was, I was like pushing rope. It was one of those things. Whenever you're on the, on the kind of, in retrospect, leading edge, I mean, it becomes a little difficult. Um, but uh, I persevered. And after a while, it got to be known. It, it was my brand. It, it was just like, okay, here comes Roy. He's going to look at this thing completely differently. So get ready and be prepared to take not just a shift, not that just a pivot, which I think is a far too inert word, 
but yes. to, but to break away. Okay, pivots about you know moving on a fulcrum. I'm about getting rid of the fulcrum, right, and coming up with something right. new. And so uh, eventually, we ended up um, at that time acquiring Telus, merging with them to be a much larger organization. And I was eventually asked to to take on this this formidable challenge of of building a business from the early data stages into a uh, into a, a, a world, a class organization that quote, unleashed the power of the internet. And I gotta tell you, Warren, I, get go I got goosebumps right now, thinking about what we were able to do, okay, in a relatively short period of time to build this business to a billion in annual revenue. I mean, now it's like 16 and 17. Yeah. But wow, getting that traction, it was, it was amazing. And, and what is even more amazing is it was not complicated. And that's what I want to share with your audience. This mm. is not about complicated stuff. It's really simple stuff. So just before we get into it, I'm just, I'm curious, because this, this is an interesting idea for, for people who are learning to grow businesses as well. Were you always oriented towards seeing things different? Like even, you know, as a kid growing up, or was that, was that something you kind of came to through your experience? Yeah, it was learned because uh, I tell you what, it was a it was a means to an end. First of all, what I'm all about is driving bottom line performance. Okay, in any leadership role that I ever had, I was not one of these guys that kind of said, "Wow, that's kind of a cool thing to try." What I was all about was saying, "Okay, we need to grow this puppy. What are the key levers le levers that we have to actually do that?" And so that led me to look for things that were different than what was tried in the past because we were into a new world, but I felt had a good chance of working as we, as we went forward. So it was learned. It, it was a means to an end. Be different is not an end in itself, right? It's, it enables an organization to perform in unbelievable ways. And, right. and if it weren't for that, I wouldn't be a be different guy. Like it's, it's cool, but I'm not just willing to do it because it's cool. It has to have, you know, the kind of desired outcome. And as a leader, that's all about building businesses, dazzling employees, creating wealth and, and value for customers. That's what it's all about. And I had to learn it and try it and fail at it and learn it and try and fail at it. I call it planning on the run. It's just like try yeah. a bunch of stuff. Building, uh, and, building and the plane in the air. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's what it's all about. I mean, there's too much conversation about silver bullets and everybody's looking for the one thing. Well, I got to tell you, you're, my you're friend, preaching to the no converted here, man. That's I know, I, I, right. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. That's... So anybody can learn this. And in fact, what I would say is because I've spent four decades doing this, why wouldn't you check out my stuff? Right. And find out what, what appeals to you and what lights your fire. And give it a whirl because I can guarantee you if you do it, it will work. Unlike a textbook, it will work because I built it into a billion dollars a year. That's the right. proof point. So why wouldn't you have a go, right? Absolutely. So let's dive into what's what's the key idea behind different or be different or be dead? Like it's not it's not just any difference, right? It's the right kind. Like people can be different by you know having cool brands and interesting clothes, and but that doesn't drive value. No. So what's the, when you say be different, what's the kind of difference you're talking about? Well, first of all, the, the, the whole notion here is, um, is to figure out a way to not be branded as 
a member of the common herd where you don't get noticed, nobody listens to you. I mean, it might be, it might be warm and cozy and non-threatening, et cetera, et cetera, but it's a pretty boring place to be if you're in a world where you need to get attention and you need to grow whatever it is that, that you're trying to grow. However, to your point, being different is all about finding ways uh, that, of doing things that people care about in a different way. So it all goes back to this whole notion that says, if I've got a customer, the, the, the be different algorithm is to find out what they care about, what they crave, not what they need, right? There's everybody's after needs, by the way. And if you focus on needs, eventually you're going to be competing on price and we know where that goes, right? That's right. Yeah. So value here is all about what do you care about, Warren? I need to find that out. I need to find out what you crave because once I've got that, I'm going to be a different, I'm going to be the only one that supplies it the way I do. You're going to pay me pre premium prices for that because again, it's non-needs based and, and I'm going to drive better margins in the business. It's more about not what your DNA is. It's about what you choose to do to serve people in a different way. That's what this, this whole mantra is about. Mm -hmm. if, you can't, if you can't satisfy what people care about in a unique way, then forget about the be different thing because that's the formula. Be right. different and is all about that. One of the things I particularly like about your work is that it's, it's be different, not just make up a marketing campaign that makes you sound different. Like, can you talk a little about the importance of the authenticity of that difference? Yeah, I mean, it, it gets back to, if you don't have this stuff flowing in your veins, forget it, okay? It really is all about being motivated to, to try something contrarian. I mean, I chose the word audacious because it really does, it really does describe what I'm trying to do here. It's mm -hmm. about being bold. It's about being courageous. It's about being contrarian. It's about being risky, right? It's about being edgy. It's about using edgy language. I mean, sometimes I get criticized for swearing. Well, <laughs> get over it, right? Right. So the whole thing is, it's part of who Roy is. So every time I look at something, I have this lens and I say to myself, how can I do this differently? And, and, and that has been an incredible beacon for me through my whole life, okay? So that's kind of what that's about, the motivation. If you're not willing to accept pain, because I've discovered pain, uh, Warren is a, a key strategic concept. <laughs> because yeah. if you Can want to push- Talk some... a little about that. I was going to ask you about that because okay. I've heard you say that before. Yeah, so, so you know, I mean, pu pushing against the flow with, with breakaway thinking doesn't come without a lot of resistance. So in order to push through that resistance, um, you have to be able to, to absorb a lot of body blows mm -hmm. from people who don't want to go there, who people that think you're crazy, all right, who people that actually don't believe because it's not in the textbook, it can't be right. So there's all of this, all of these barriers, right, that are constantly in your face. And so I call it pain in terms of absorbing that with enough resilience to move forward. Um, and if you don't have that, then you're going to get beaten back. And if you get beaten back, you're not going to be able to be different and get the value from that whole concept. And unfortunately, what you do is you, you short circuit the rest of the world and the value they can get from you when, in fact, you do, it, you do the be different thing in the right way. 
And so yeah. if so you're not willing, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to, to, to take the pain uh, along the way and just persevere, notwithstanding all of that stuff, then it's going to be a tough journey and you may as well forget it. You mm -hmm. just, it won't, will not work for you. There's a couple threads in there that are, that I want to pick up. And one is that this work requires some courage, but also it, the way you just frame that to me, it requires a particular kind of humility, which is that don't make it about you, make it about the person you're serving. Like if you're, if you're not willing to do it because you may get pushback at a certain level, you're making that more about you than about the customer. But if you actually believe that what you're doing provides value to others in a way that other people can't provide, you almost have a responsibility to overcome your own nervousness to try to put this extra value out there in the world. Well, absolutely. Well said. I mean, what else are leaders there to do? Leaders aren't there to manage a business. They're not there to manage momentum. They're there to change momentum. They're there to introduce continuities that will result in unmatched performance because they're able to, to take care of what customers crave uh, in a way that nobody else can. Now, um, you've, you've been open about kind of rejecting, you even mentioned it a minute ago, about rejecting textbook uh, thinking or traditional principles. Do you have any, like, and if you can't think of any off the top, no worry, but do you, do you have a few that you think are particularly egregious, like some of these traditional principles that people are taught? Oh, what a great lob. Thank you, my friend. That is a beautiful lob. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got lots. And, you know, if we had two hours, we could probably go through them all. But but one of them that 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 really annoys me is, is the way people are taught to create competitive advantage claims. Okay, like one of the things you read any textbook, you need to be unique, you need to have a way to differentiate yourself, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet the tool set is woefully inadequate. Let me explain, right? So you look at any brand of any company or any person out there, and I guarantee you, you will see what I call claptrap. Now, claptrap statements are statements and words like better, uh -huh. best, premium. Okay, you're, you're smiling. You know exactly where I'm going. Oh, yeah. I mean, Tina Turner has a song out that I just heard last night again for the billionth time said, saying simply the best, better than all the rest. What the hell does that mean? Exactly. Okay, so <laughs> I look at there are, I'm going to get to that. There's, there's a place for aspirations. Okay, but not when you're trying to convince somebody to do business with you and no one else. Because aspirations, unfortunately, don't mean squat. Okay, they're lofty. Peter Drucker called them helium-filled statements, okay, with no semblance. That approach is promulgated by, quote, the experts in the field. And in fact, go to any textbook. Go, just Google what a great brand statement looks like, a great competitor, and you will find that those statements are replete with what I call claptrap, claptrap oh. and aspirations. So I'm so glad you're saying this. I've had debates with clients <laughs> about, you know, and they'll pull up something, but look, this is what these people are saying. But what does that say to your customer? I have this argument with them all the time. So I have a solution. It's a simple solution. And I had to create this. This is my uh, solution to claptrap and aspirational dominated competitive claims. That's pretty good. I got to write that down. I could That's use that in a blog. Like <laughs> and it's called the only statement. Okay, if you read my work, uh, there's a lot of time and you read my blogs, I spend a lot of time on this, because I have no right to criticize unless I have a solution. Well, I do have a solution. And by the way, it worked because I got a billion in sales, just to get that out of the way. 
It's right. called the only statement. It's very simple. It says, we are the only ones that. So instead of saying we're better than blah, blah, we're the best, we say we're the only ones that, and you fill it out. Now, the interesting thing about the only statement is it's binary. It either exists or it doesn't. You can observe it. You can test it. You can prove it or disprove it, as the case may be. Um, now let me give you an example, because I've worked a lot with different companies. Where is it here? Um, yeah, so here's an example that I use. And I, by the way, I have my own personal only statement because it works for individuals in your careers as well. Same issue. What makes Roy special? Okay, I'm the only one that, and I can give that to you. Anyways, this is a Saint, this is Saint John's Ambulance, a not-for-profit that created an only statement. It went like this. Saint John Ambulance is the only first aid advocate that provides safety solutions anywhere, anytime. Now that was a mammoth move away from flogging safety products, by the way, because you notice it said solutions. Solution is a, an attempt to get at, from their perspective, providing benefits and added value as opposed to flogging, you know, packaging and stuff like that, because the world is replete with that. So if you can create an only statement for your business, okay, you will be closer to providing a meaningful reason why somebody should do business with you as opposed to your competition. But if you keep using words like better, best, blah, 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 you know, your, your clients and the market's eyes will blaze over and you will have achieved very, very little. So, so the whole notion of how you create and declare why somebody should do business with you and nobody else from an academic and textbook point of view falls woefully short. I mean, it just doesn't do the job. And, you know, these are major. And I'm not saying you can't have a successful company without this. There's, I mean, a lot of the examples I've got are from, from very famous companies that have other things that they do that make them successful. But they are terrible, all right, at declaring their uniqueness because they rely on the academic textbook claptrap that's out there. That's just one piece. There's a, there's a whole... I mean, I say, seriously, Warren, we could spend all morning on this. Oh, yeah, but that's that's a good one. I, I fully agree with you. That, <laughs> that claptrap stuff drives me crazy. Um, now, on the only statement, I'm curious, like a lot of a lot of the people who listen to this, as I say, they're trying to do some things in the world that are different. Um, in your experience, how how um, influential or impactful in the market can, a, can an only statement be where part of the only statement is a values basis? that like the company is driven by particular values or has does some other social good that maybe doesn't directly give a benefit to the client directly, but it's, it's a thing that we're the only ones who do this to do this additional good thing in the world. Another great question. Uh, first of all, okay, the process goes like this. Um, and I had to create this, by the way. Oh, there, that's, this is another thing. I created what I call my strategic game planning process, which is a process built to execute completely different than you'll read in any textbook, except mine. It starts out with a question that says, how big do you want to be in mm -hmm. 24 months? That's a top line revenue objective. It's not a bottom line uh, net income or EBITDA, which I can, I can manipulate anyway. It's a top line gross revenue objective, which is which basically describes how the marketplace feels about your value proposition. So that's why I choose it. Where do you want to be in 24 months? Not five years, because the fourth year never shows up. And if you want to execute, and I want to come back to that, because that's another key element of being different. It's not yes. just the notion, 
but it's actually putting music to the words. Um, or the other way around, whatever they say. So anyways, that's the first, first thing, how big do you wanna be? But the second piece, because I'm getting close to answering your question, but I have to go through this. The second piece says, okay, where are you gonna get the money? So that says, who do you wanna serve, okay? That's, that's, a, that's a strategy about choosing those few customer segments or groups that actually have the latent potential to deliver the revenue that you've just declared you want under your how big, okay? The third question is, how are you gonna compete and win? That's where we get to the only statement because the answer to that question is, we're gonna compete and win by being the only one that. Now, the thing is, it's all about the who. It doesn't address the market. So to your point, it doesn't really matter what you think your values are. What matters is what the who wants, cares about, is compelling to receive. It's about them. It's not about your aspirations as a corporation to be a good social citizen, unless the who says that's something they care about. Then the Olin statement is created in the image of what the who cares about. Right. This, all, this goes back to our initial conversation. It's not about being cool. I mean, it's a process, Warren. And it says, you define your who, you map out, and I've got what a process, what I call the caring map. It's not complicated. It's called a caring map, which is a scatter diagram of defining what the who cares about. And then what you do is select those caring elements that you have competitive, you have competency in, and then you start to craft your only statement. So it's very, very targeted. And one of the mistakes people make with the only and I'm constantly having to remind them, it's not about the market. It's about who you choose to serve because it's, you're trying to answer the question to those people, why should they do business with you as opposed to the competitors that are in that space? Okay, and so if you happen to be targeted geographically, then you need to look at what's going on in that segment and not the world. It's that segment. So you're trying to get really, really focused. And it's a discipline that people have a hard time adhering to. And the reason for that is they haven't been taught that way because the books teach yeah. them exactly the opposite. Yeah, it's interesting when I do when I, I do a lot of work with clients around values based cultures and things like that. And one of the one of the more interesting conversations and challenging ones that happens is when I try to say this is for internal consumption. It is not necessarily for your marketing. And they, all the, the, the textbook stuff is your vision and values have to be put on your website. And I know they don't. This is, if your customer cares about it, then put it out there. But if your customer doesn't care about it, then just make sure you're driven internally by that. But that's not necessarily speaking to your audience. Absolutely. I mean, and, but the, pro the problem is those are the only tools that they had until now. The mm -hmm. only statement is the only competitive claim. Okay. Um, a methodology that actually works. Yeah. It cuts through the clutter. That's binary, that's black and white, that can be measured. Now, the other thing that I have to say, though, about the only statement, and this is what makes it real, is that it's always a draft. It's never complete. Because to, 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 to say that it's complete would be basically uh, to declare that the world is never going to change and our competitors will never change either. So it's going to be sealed in stone for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Reality is, okay, you know where I'm going with this. Oh, let's, yeah. let's keep it real. And so in a way, by saying that the only statement is always a draft, you're also giving yourselves permission 
to not be 100% right, which is another thing that textbooks insist that you try and be. We all know that perfection doesn't exist, and yet we're always being admonished when we're not perfect. While the only statement is, is, a, is a place in the world where you define how big you want to be, you declare who you want to serve, you create your only around that, and treat it as a draft. You test it, and then you, then you start to use it, and you learn from that, right? And you start to tweak it as you go. That's what makes it real. And I tell you, when I sit down with clients and I talk to them about why this is important, they, you know what happens? They just relax. They relax yeah, because they know they don't have to be forever. Well, can you imagine anybody promulgating a, a rule, right? That, that says you have to do this for the rest of your, your life in a world that changes every nanosecond. Yeah. How preposterous, it's shameful thinking, it's shocking coming from the academic community. And yet, that's what they do. Hmm. Clearly, I'm not invited back to MBA classes anymore. <laughs> the students would invite you. <laughs> they, uh, they would love it, but the profs, not so much. <laughs> you've been, a, I want to go on a, just a brief tangent, but because you've been a leader in a high profile company, um, and I, you know, I lived in Alberta when Telus was was growing, so I, I remember that journey really clearly. Um, so there's a, there's an old Greek philosopher, I think it's Antisthenes. Yeah, he said rulers are fated to earn a bad reputation by good deeds, or something like that. I think that was the quote. So a lot of folks who listen to this are trying to do some good in the world, but they may not really be prepared for the you know, the possibility that they may not be showered with praise for doing the right thing. You know, they're not necessarily going to be given the doubt for making the hard choices. And given what you talked about earlier about, you know, your pain is a strategic advantage. <laughs> you know, was that experience, what advice do you have for people trying to do bold things that may cut across the grain that they're going to get pushback about? Yeah, and it, it, it's a good question. And it, it also is part of the question about if I had to do it over again, what would I do differently? Um, one of the things that, that I would do differently, which is a learning point for others, is I would gather advocates sooner, as opposed to trying to push a lot of the stuff on my own. Now, the problem I had then was there were very, very few advocates, and so I had to push. However, I always think maybe had I taken 50% of that personal push time and used it to gather an army of advocates, maybe eventually it would have been a little easier to do it that way. Okay, that's one thing. But the second thing is, again, I go back, look at, if you don't believe in this stuff strongly, then it's not for you. And so that belief is actually a source of energy and passion. And if you have that, it's amazing what you can do. Okay, just relying on that, that, that energy reservoir to keep you going. Um, so keep the fire lit, try and spread your word, which is what I call, and, and really, I'm not altruistic in a whole lot of ways, but the one thing that I really believe in is we need to change the conversation. That's why you and I are having this conversation right now. You and I are, are sort of a part of the puzzle of how to change the conversation from theoretical to the practical, from going with the flow to being contrarian, to being ridiculous as opposed to being safe. It's a hard journey to go, okay? Um, and you either want to get on it or not, but once you decide, you just kind of need to muster it up 
as you go. Now, a lot of people will simply say, you know what, I just, and I'm okay with this. I just don't have the energy to do this, Roy. And I said, okay, I get that. So you're going to have to figure out another way. Um, and I feel disappointed, but that's just the way it is. There's no formula here. People keep asking me, what's the single thing? Well, there isn't a single thing. There's a ton of small, simple, you know, ways to light fires in people that I've discovered work like a dam. Um, and that you need to try, but you, and you have to stay with them. Look at, I mean, if we can change the culture in a large organization, we're talking 10,000 people in the data world at that time, to yeah. change the culture from voice to data, from engineering to marketing, from taking orders to providing solutions, to being reactive, to being proactive, we can do that there. You'll never convince me that you as an entrepreneur who have more control over your own destiny can't do the same thing. It's a cop-out. Right. I don't believe you. You're not committed. Yeah. So can you give it just, I mean, I know there's a ton, but just a couple of, a couple of ways, because this right now I'm finding, I don't know if you are too, or the people you're talking to, like in, I, I haven't experienced clients having the great resignation, but they're having the great hard to find, like getting people. And so this, this notion of how you light a fire under people and make them committed to the organization and caring about this customer service and those kinds of things and committing to the, to the difference that you've articulated. You know, if you had a couple of tips on how you light that fire, what might they be? So one, one thing that worked exceedingly well for me, uh, which I got a lot of pressure from my executive colleagues on, was, um, was an initiative that I uh, implemented called um, killing, kill dumb rules. Very simple concept, right? A dumb rule was something that was in the company that, that just did nothing but annoy customers. It just really pissed them off, okay? Now, every organization has them. And I kept asking myself, why? Why do we have these things in, you know, in, in there were either processes or rules or procedures, internal stuff that caused all of these, these kind of problems? So I initiated what I call cleanse the internal environment, was, was the broad umbrella name of my of my initiative with several you know specifics and one was dumb rules and so i um i went out into the into the uh, into the messy world uh, of the trenches and said to frontline people do we have any dumb rules and they no, went no none none roy how much time do you have <laughs> so they they were amazing. So I I established this process of having dumb rules committees all over the organization, and it include frontline people, blah 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 blah. And so the objective of the committee or these committees or teams uh, was to come up with dumb rules, and they would advance those dumb rules that should be killed or modified because some of the stuff was legal. We at least could change them to make them customer friendly or tell people why we were doing them. So there are other ways we could handle them, but a lot of them were just stupid, outright stupid, and we had to kill them. Um, and so we, I had these teams running all over the place. And so we had dumb rules contests on, on a monthly basis. And I would go into the workplace and I had a, I had a white long sleeve t-shirt and it had dumb rules written on the front and the back with a big X through it. And this was a president of the company wandering through the workplace, advocating to get rid of cleanse the internal environment of stuff that didn't make any sense to customers. Now, 
other people would look at this and the executive floor and they said, Roy, you can't do that. And I said, what do you mean you can't do that? You can't, you can't, you can't say that we're doing dumb things. I said, okay, you're right. I will not call them dumb rules. I will call them stupid policies, ridiculous notions. Does that work any better for you? <laughs> no. So anyways, we got the dumb rule thing. And, and what it did is it's just more than getting rid of the, the, the sort of things that created you know, problems in terms of serving customers. It lit fires because people knew it was the right thing to do. And here was a leader who actually fed them, fed the machine, enabled them. Those are the sorts of things. And by the way, it took a while to get onto that because we, you know, looking at different, this was not sort of, I woke up in the morning going, wow, we got dumb rules. I'm going to go on this. It was a matter of working with people and observing the things that they were telling me. I call it leadership by serving around. Okay. Which is a different slant on it, which we can talk about if you want, but it was listening to them and trying to categorize, okay, what they really mean is there's all sorts of stuff internally that are preventing them from doing the job they want. And in my world said, okay, chances are my objective of creating memorable customer experiences isn't going to be achieved unless I'm able to deal with this. So the cleanse the environment piece was a huge element in how are we gonna execute the plan better, which had this big customer service component. And in the process lit fires and and I was just known as the guy that would listen. I was just known as the guy that came up with these harebrained notions that they loved. And you well, know what? I think today, it shows, you know, pe people talk about the word empathy a lot, uh, but a lot of people don't think really understand what it means. And I've always thought there's two real big drivers of empathy. One is humility and one is curiosity. And this, this initiative you're talking about really embraces both of those, right? At the, at the leadership level, you're saying, there's stuff I don't know that's going on. I want to hear from you. And I'm curious enough that I really, I want to know what it is. And I'm humble enough that I'm going to take the feedback from you at the front line. And I think that that probably what lights people up. I've got an, I've got an, a leader who has true empathy, who cares about what I'm thinking or feeling. Yeah. And I think that the other thing that goes with that, because you can care and you can have empathy, but if you don't do stuff, do something as a result of what you hear, yes. you eventually end up to be a phony and people will just shut down. So for me, it was really risky, okay, because here, what you're doing is I'm asking somebody as part of my, I call it leadership by serving around LBSA, as part of my model, I'd say, Warren, how can I help? And you would tell me, okay, it's a personal question I'm asking you. It's not an organizational issue. It's Roy asking Warren, okay? And so I'm putting myself out there to, first of all, listen, but there's way more in that than just listening. It's actually taking what you have to say and doing something about it and actually coming back and say, hey, how did that work out, right? Oh, okay, didn't work 50%. Well, okay, what else can we do to improve it, et cetera, et cetera. So that is exceedingly time consuming, but that's the only honest way to do it. Yeah. Again, I'm not that's a tech- drives me nuts about like listening tours. Listening tours that don't turn into action tours just waste well, everything's time. In a way, in a way, that's what Tom Peters started. Okay, and bless his heart, he started by talking about management by wandering around. And it was a listening tour, but they didn't exist before. Right. So it was a positive move. So all I've done is said, well, okay, we're not wandering. Okay, we're asking, how can I help individuals and making a commitment, a personal commitment as a leader to actually do something about it. And I'm going to report back to you. And let's keep doing that. Now, what you find is 
you get referrals inside. So if I do it for you and you have a good experience with me as your leader, then chances are you're going to tell your coworker. And that's how the virus spreads. That's one virus you want to spread. You want a pandemic of people <laughs> around this process. And it was a, so there's one example, simple example, simple example of, of coming up with a silly notion. But you notice it's not just a cool idea. This whole, per, this whole cleansy environment thing it was, is driven to make execution better and drive better financial performance. It's not just hanging out there to satisfy some HR's person's view of what you need to do to treat people better. That wasn't it at all. Fact it is, it did it, but it wasn't set out to do that. Right, everything has a strategic objective behind it. Dumb, absolutely total. This is why uh, there's a lot of advocates of these concepts that can't actually, can't do much for business because they don't have that experience about cause and effect. Right, and they treat the cause and a solution to the cause as an end in and of itself, and it's not. So that there's a really interesting thing in what in what you just said that I've I've been thinking about recently as well, and it's you know how how you create discernment, like what's the the significance of having been in the trenches and the experience? Because you're pointing like I can read a book but not know how to apply it. And I see this a ton, right? Somebody watches a video online or they read a book and it's not pragmatic and the, the, the nuances aren't there. And if you try to apply something in the wrong way, you can hurt yourself. You know, so with you, you've been, you've been in the world of advising entrepreneurs. I have too. And I've bumped up against places where people have gotten really bad advice, but it's not, it wasn't bad advice, but there wasn't that nuance of, of, having been there and experienced that to make those distinctions. Well, but it's not a perfect world. Okay. One of the things that I, I used to do a lot of was I used to read a lot. The difference between me and other people, look at, I do not have a formal marketing degree. So how the hell did I get to be chief marketing officer? Well, the reality is what I was, what I did was I was a really good applicator. So I would read stuff. I learned marketing on the job. I've changed it because it, you know, the traditional way doesn't work for me anymore, but I started learning and applying and failing, learning, apply, try, fail, boom, boom, boom. That's all you can do. Okay. That is all you can do. You can't, I mean, after a while, when you're an operator, you get some insights to your point. You do, you get some insights in terms of what's likely to work in a certain way and what isn't. But in the final analysis, there's no substitution for trying it and learning on the run. That's right. Practical, just do it, uh, try it, fix it on the run. On the run piece is a huge element of, of the way I think about execution. Okay, because there's no model for the perfect way to execute anything. Okay, you may have a, a, you may have a kind of a, like a, a concept or notion in your head, but until you actually start doing it, you have no idea whether it's going to work or not. I keep saying, just get the hell on with it. Get on with it and start learning. As long as you're pontificating, you're not doing anything. And as long as you're not doing anything, I'm not making any progress. Just never make the same mistake twice. Okay. That's that was all that was the only rule Roy had when it came to trying things. I'm okay if you fail. In fact, the more tries you make, uh, the more likely it is that you're gonna actually get something done. And I would, I would, I would actually, you know. 
I would actually reward you for that. But if you make the same mistake twice, you obviously didn't learn from the first time. And that's a bad thing. So I got, you got whacked in the side of the head. That's it. Right. It's interesting. I, just, I had a, a conversation with a group just a couple of days ago on this very point. I challenged them. I said, if somebody within their area of authority makes a decision that is sound based on available information, but it doesn't work out, do you reward them or do you punish them? Like if their decision turned well, what into did a they failure, say? What did they say? Well, it was, it was, there was silence for a minute. And it was sort of like, what do you mean? And I was like, we live in a probabilistic world. Like there's no, there's no way of knowing that something is going to work out. So if somebody makes a reasonable decision and it fails, are they rewarded for having been a proactive decision maker, trying to make things better? Or are you going to say that didn't work out? So you're, you're at fault for that. And well, you it, know, it was, it was like, there were light bulbs going off in the room. Well, but, but really, why should there be, I mean, that's my point. Why should there be light bulbs? I know. Like, what is it about these common concepts that people don't know about? Now, the other thing I will say to you, if you're not doing your leader, your leadership role that I just described earlier, chances are you've got a greater likelihood that those new ideas will fail. Why? Because people in the trenches don't believe you. They will not give you that extra energy required to make it work. If they trust you because you got rid of dumb rules, that you're always in the trenches getting your hands dirty, that you're suffering pain along with them, maybe, just maybe, they'll give it the extra 150% that's needed to make that stupid idea work. And so it all is on you as a leader, okay? It, it's all on you. You need to own it. You need to take responsibility for it, not just say, oh, well, you know what? Those people didn't perform very well because the idea didn't work. No, it's on you, not on them. You should take the hit on your performance plan. You should get 50% less bonus, not them. Nice. Now, you, you make, or just to shift a little again, you make a really, another really interesting distinction that I, I like, which was, between kind of your core customer service and dazzling customer experience. What's the, sig what's the significance of that? I really like it. I think it's something people yeah. need to think more about. So, so this is one of the few models that I learned that actually work, okay? I learned this from my buddy, Ron Cox in Tampa, Florida, who now has his own company. I'll give him a plug called Tailwind Consulting. He's a friend of mine, love him dearly, smart, into leadership stuff, he introduced me to this service quality concept. Like it almost, it seems like a gazillion years ago, <laughs> no kidding. And the concept, one of these examples where, wow, the concept resonated with me because I think I thought at that time that it could be implemented. So I came back to fuss around with it, but it had basically has two pieces to service quality. Okay. The first piece is core service. Now, core service is the, is the basic production of the firm, what you produce, the product and service. So like in a, in a telecom world, it would be internet service as an example of one of the core services that you provide. Now, the interesting thing is core service at best is a dissatisfier, which means people expect that core service to work 24-7, 365. And if it does, they don't give you um, recognition. Like, I've never had anybody call me up in my day saying, wow, Roy, that internet service was pristine. You're the best. I'm going to stay with you for a million years. Yeah. They just People expect, just expect it. it. And I, I would also say dial tone in the day was the same sort of thing. So people expect it. Now, the interesting thing is 
if you don't provide your core service that works seamlessly, you get a hit. So that's why it's a dissatisfier and they hate you for it. The internet's down, the service is down, the washing machine doesn't work, the router doesn't work. I hate this company that provides it because their service doesn't work. So you can see that the, that the, that the basic uh, enabler to be able to provide any degree of, of, of an experience is based on, first of all, get your core service right. Once you've done that, so you've got to provide a lot of resources. But what I find is a lot of people spend all their time trying to do that under the mistaken belief that if you get your core service right, you're going to get loyal customers. doesn't work that way. You need to, to get to do that to get in the game. Yeah, I think but then Gallup, there's a second piece. Gallup did a study on that, that satisfaction is a zero predictor of loyalty. It's nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah, you know, I can, yeah. So the second piece is where you go. On top of core service, it's the service experience component that actually is the source, okay, of Dazzle, and it's the source of um, customer loyalty. So provide them with, satisfy them on your core service and dazzle them on the service experience. And so the question is, now that's described in a number of ways, provide memorable experiences, dazzling experience, mind-blowing experience, all sorts of adjectives, but the basic idea is give them what they don't know they want. Give them, surprise them with something. Now, a lot of people haven't written about this, but my view is the essential element of a service experience that's absolutely mind-blowing for the customer has got a huge surprise element because it says, unlike most people's beliefs that you need to give people what they expect, that's not what I believe. If you want to blow them away, you give them what they don't expect. And that's the surprise factor, okay? And so, so, so how do you get to this dazzle state? Well, figuring out how to surprise is one, but the other key thing here is you need to recruit people that like humans, okay? And I if wanted you, to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, so this is the homo sapien lover in my world. Yeah. Um, because dazzling experience needs to have an army of human being lovers. It, you can't do it with people would be, that would rather be taking inventory or with people who would rather be writing HTML coding. That's right. You need people, and I reasoned this really, really early on, you need people who were born with a DNA strain that says, I just love other people and I want to take care of them. Okay, I can teach you how to smile, Warren. I can teach you how to grin, but I cannot teach you how to love people. It's a recruitment issue. Right. And so I had to, I had to come up with this, this another crazy notion, which I call hiring for goosebumps. This is another crazy Roy idea, right? That says, all right, how do I figure out when I'm sitting across the table from somebody that wants to join my organization, which by the way, I, I was an active part early on of recruiting People. I mean, it must have been pretty intimidating. The president of the organization was sitting across the table from somebody that wanted to be a service rep. However, the whole point was I needed to test a theory that I had about the ability to hire people that love people. I tagged it hire for goosebumps. And it kind of went like this. I'd say to you, Warren, do you love people? Now, first of all, you're going to sit back a little bit because you know what the answer is, but you just had no idea where I was going with the question, right? So you would say, yes. <laughs> I'd, okay. Could be reluctantly, yes, but you or, knew that, that would be right. Some people, but not all people. <laughs> <laughs> so I would follow up 
with the next question, which was, okay, tell me a story that would show me and prove to me how much you love Homo sapiens. Now, this was the killer question. Because the people that kind of understood intellectually where I was going, but really didn't like people or just like some of them, they would tell me a story that kind of left me cold, right? And I'd usher them, I'd usher them out the door. The people, they really had the people-loving DNA gene in their, in their body. They would tell me a story that was warm, that was passionate, that was deep with emotion. And it would leave me with goosebumps. I would hire that person. That's where when, when, you, when you did that, like I, I've heard you talk about that before and it really, it really interested me. And I was thinking, Oh, how would I answer that question? Um, and I wonder what, what give, cause there are, and I've, I've thought about a number of other people who I know love people and think what stories they would come up with. Um, and I thought, would they give goosebumps? Like there's some people for whom that's just so in their DNA that their way of loving people is just, Hey, my neighbor was sick and I, I, shovel the walk for them or you know somebody dropped groceries in the middle of the street and i ran over and picked up the app like it's it's just this daily kind of way of being and to pull out a story would it necessarily produce goosebumps when it's just that daily small moments that reveal that this is the person who loves people it's not because they're going out doing something spectacular it's just a daily way of caring about others yeah and so we don't want to create a whole science around goosebumps, okay? We don't want to do that. We want to take the notion, we know what the intent is, right? The yeah. intent is to drill down on, 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 on people's experiences with other humans. What I would typically do is if somebody did that, I would recognize that they really have it, but I, wanted to, I would want to learn more and say, well, tell, tell me more about, you know, why is it that you you do that. I mean, what, what's going on inside you? I mean, is this something you, and I just probe and probe and probe until eventually I would get them. I yeah. would get them to tell me in a different way because they may, you're right. Some people at the very beginning would kind of sort of give a, a summary abbreviated version. And maybe some, some people wouldn't want to take a deep dive. I would end up, I would end up encouraging them to take a deep dive, knowing full well that they've already passed just by saying what they did, right? right. And um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I would get immense goosebumps. Sometimes I would get small goosebumps. Sometimes I would get the notion of, I'm about to have a goosebump. <laughs> right, because yeah, I, I, I know people for, I've had versions of that conversation and it actually takes, because there's, because it's just part of your DNA, you, you think of the daily stuff and then somewhere along the line, there's gonna be that, like in my case, it was like, Oh yeah, that's right. When I was 18 years old, I pulled a body out of a river when everybody else was standing around or something. But you know, that it isn't it isn't the thing that comes just, to mind right you, away. You just gave me goosebumps. You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> no, but look at it, it, it's a conversation. And and yes, eventually you will get the, the right amount of response that will tingle you. And all I'm saying is if you get that that little bit of a notion, that's the person you want because you're going to unleash that person uh, to, with your, your best asset, your most valuable asset called the customer. And the yeah. other thing is, the other reason it works is they're, they're, they love their fellow employees in the same way. And, and my, my belief has always been, if the inside of the organization is acting in harmony, chances are those people will take care of the individual outside the organization oh, yeah. called the customer. 
right? You can't. I think good good leaders get this. I I I love this conversation because it is about the, you know, the front line. You can you can build in a lot of organizations try to build customer experience design through systems and processes, but if you don't have the people, you know, and and good leaders get this. I my my mother was uh, a receptionist. But it was interesting. She was the only person other than the president who had a parking spot in the building. And it was because the president knew she had a way of setting everybody at ease when they walked in. And it also allowed her to get in from like she saw who people were because she was very disarming. You know, so she made the customer feel great, but also allowed the president to gain information about not not. Yeah, no, negative, no, hear just, you. you know char- character no, information you. about about yeah. the people who are coming in and it was like it, i remember because i was just a kid when my mom told me that she you know and she didn't think it was a big deal she had the parking spot but i went oh that's real so there's a leader who gets it like he saw somebody who exactly loves right people, you know and puts that person right on the front line and made her indispensable to the organization I, I love that story and and I love any story about I mean I'm a, I'm a believer the receptionist controls the, that moment of truth okay that explains to that individual what the company's all about they own it and so I've always wondered why aren't receptionists on the top of the organization because mm-hmm. they drive loyalty oh yeah and again it's because I'll tell you why it's because the textbooks Treat you that organization structures should look different and we should delegate and all this kind of stuff. Hogwash. Okay. I'm a strategic do-it-yourselfer. Always was as a leader. Yeah. Right. And there's some stuff you can't delegate. In fact, there's a significant difference between delegation and abdication. And I think textbooks, quite frankly, they're promulgating the notion that you need to abdicate more because they're they're promulgating you should oh, delegate more. I and so it's all agree with you. Yeah. Hogwash. <laughs> shocking <laughs> indeed indeed listen you've been really generous with your time i just have a few sort of like final questions that i always like to ask people yeah um what what's one decision or action that most helps you get where you are um just probably acting too quickly like some people would criticize me that i don't put a lot of thought into something um, when somebody raises a possibility and my wife will actually fall into this category, Roy, in, instead of thinking about it for too long, you just, you just immediately react and go do it. Well, that's been a really positive thing for me, uh, mm-hmm. not to spend a whole lot of time on, on something that is imprecise anyways. And so I don't see any rate of return on that. I just do it and learn from the execution. And it's, it's something on an organizational level, on a career level, and it should be on a societal level that should that should that everybody I hope gets more comfortable with. Okay, is that notion? Just get on and do it. Take it. React. Figure it out on the run. Right. That's why I, I long ago came up with an acronym, Dare, which was decide, act, review, and execute. That's that's your way of saying planning on the run, and I absolutely agree with you. Dead right. So if you had to do it all, you asked, you mentioned that question earlier, but if you had to do it all over again, what, is there one thing you would do differently? No, there's a bunch of things I would do differently. Right. Uh, I, I mentioned one, which is probably to, to gather more advocates. I think, I think patience. Yeah. I, I perhaps given the shift that we were looking at making, uh, perhaps a little more, uh, a little more patience might've, uh, might've worked a, a little better in retrospect. Um, I probably should have played more golf. Uh, 
because I, I was a guy that worked a whole lot and didn't really see the value in in going out playing golf on the weekends when I could be spending time with my family. But, you know, in retrospect, just given the inclinations and attitudes at the time, it maybe hurt me a little bit, but you know what, overall, I mean, I'm happy that I was able to relate to people, people, and I've been gone for decades. Okay. I can still run into people from BC tell, tell us they remember me. They know me. We have a wonderful conversation about, what happened and, and, and the reason, the reason that, at least that I'm told, the reason that they like having the conversation is because I was just kind of like a real person. I wasn't one of these, these executive types. I was honestly driven to um, provide meaningful work for people that resulted in positive economic outcomes for the organization and its shareholders. And I think that's what leaders are supposed to do. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a, it's an unfortunately overused word, but true authenticity, I think, is such a competitive advantage in leadership. You know, you're absolutely right. And, and um, people will talk about that as a quality of leaders and not understand that there's a line of sight between that behavioral notion and the bottom line of the corporation. And, the, and, and if, if the textbooks could recognize that, and, and begin to teach people that, then maybe, maybe it would get advanced more, uh, but they don't. And the reason they don't is because they're not practitioners. Yeah. I'm sorry, look at, I don't mean to beat up textbooks. I believe that textbooks are there for a purpose, but the purpose is to provide somebody with a foundation. That's okay. all, that's all, give them a perspective. Uh, it is not there to be successful. Because you can't formularize people's behavior, irrespective. Look at, I mean, I got a math degree. Do you ever think I used a differential equation to solve a business problem? No. <laughs> I actually used linear algebra once. Oh, yeah. Well, linear. Well, you, yeah, but that's when you were a, a woefully low analyst in the organization. Yeah, I did it too, but I couldn't explain it to anybody. <laughs> Nobody understood it. <laughs> okay, how about this one? On the days I enjoy most, I would be found doing what? Um, um, spending time with my grandkids. I, I got four grandkids and, and I practice be different with them. I'm no, known as the audacious papa. I'm known as the, as the guy. What a, that's the best brand ever. Isn't that? And I, and I do it intentionally. I, I want to be known and remembered to them as, as a dude that, that didn't conform right? That, that was smart, that was able to translate things for them and give them a different perspective in the world than other than the one they're being taught. And you know what? Interesting. I will have them. They will text me and, oh, Christ, they got me on a TikTok and all this stuff. And I, I, they would text me and say, Papa, this is what I've read. What do you think? Okay. What do you think, Papa? And uh, so that's my best day when I can help give them another perspective, not a prescription, because mm -hmm. I don't have that right, but just another perspective from a guy who, who put on a lot of miles and achieved things that I'm really proud of. Uh, those are my good days. I think you just got the title for your next book, <laughs> Audacious Papa. <laughs> you know, that's a hell of a good idea. I love it. I think that's awesome. be an, uh, or at least Or at least a blog article, right? Yeah, for sure. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> You don't, you're not looking for residuals, are you? No, no, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> what's, what, what's one personal quality that you most had to improve or overcome? 
tolerance. I'm not, not very tolerant. tolerance or not enough. Uh, I, not enough. Um, and, and by that, I mean, I don't suffer fools very lightly. Mm -hmm. um, fools in my, in, in Roy's definition would be somebody who doesn't get it and is not willing to try it and just, you know, falls back on the same old, same old, loves it in the herd, loves the warmth, doesn't want to, all that kind of stuff. So I've had to learn and I'm not there yet, man. I mean, I'm not old enough to be there yet. Um, but yeah, I, I'm constantly struggling with the need to be more tolerant of other people and where they're coming from. And that might earn me the right to help modify their behavior. I'm not convinced that that's true. That's a hypothesis at this point, but I'm told that I tend to be intolerant and I'm told that I tend to be a driver. And you got that already just from this interview. I mean, that's, that's who I am. And it's yep. hard to change when something works. Why did it work? I got a billion in sales, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so what's with no false humility, which I don't think you suffer from a lot. What's what's one personal quality that most contributed to your success? I just have a ton of energy and I'm and I'm able to translate concepts into action. I'm able to see and I call it line of sight leadership, which which I didn't tag originally, but I've, I've come to, to understand what it is. It's like the ability to take uh, an idea or a direction and be able to translate it into, into what that means in terms of how other people need to act and behave. And in a way, it's a heck of a, it's really valuable in, 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 in avoiding dysfunction in an organization, okay? And most leaders don't do this, okay? What they do is come up with a strategy Blow out a, blow it out to the organization and assume everybody's going to implement it. Assume that the words and the logic will compel them to action. Well, it doesn't. You need to first of all convince them that it's the right thing to do, and then show them what they need to do differently and what they need to do the same. Mm. I call that line of sight leadership, and I'm able to first of all drive action from that probably better than most people but I'm also able to go the other way. I'm able to tell you based on your actions as to whether it's consistent with the strategy. Some people will say to me, Roy, I need, what do you think about my social media campaign? And I go, I, I don't have a comment. I, I don't know. And they said, what do you mean you don't know? You should be, and I said, well, let me explain. I said, first of all, you need to tell me what the strategic concept context is for your idea. I need to know what you're trying to serve by that, by that social media program. And I said, if you can't tell me that, then all you're doing is flogging a tactic and you're doing social media probably because that's the way everybody's doing it. And that's what the experts are saying. And so you feel you need to get on the bandwagon. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want to play that game. That game has no outcome that I'm even interested in. But if you can tell me what you're trying to achieve, then I can look at your social media pl plan and give you a view as to what I think about it. So I'm able to do that really easily. People go to the tactics, Warren, they go to the tactics. I got to do social media. I got to do this. I got to be a, wow. I mean, it's so crazy. You need to be informed by strategic, by the strategy. And this, in, this includes careers. You need to have a career plan to decide what you're doing out there in terms of advocating for yourself. And most people don't have a career plan. Mm. I've written an ebook called Be Different You. You've probably seen it. It's all about 
how to be different as an individual and be successful in your career called Be Different You. And it's also in my latest book, there's a big chapter on careers, which I've updated. And, and what I try and do is get people to focus on themselves and think about themselves as a value uh, piece to mm -hmm. somebody. So you're marketing yourself, quite frankly. So you yeah. need a value proposition. You need a, a competitive claim. So I take, I take them through that. I'm able to do, I'm trying to offer some tools that would allow people to do a little bit better at making the connections. Because I think I do that fairly well. And are all your books available on BeDifferentOrBeDead.com? Yeah, BeDifferentOrBeDead.com is my home. And I, I really want more visitors to come and, and join me. I've tried to create it as a, as a resource. So I've got, a, I've got the books on the, on the books page, all seven of them. So you can go and read a little bit about them. And, and you can buy one if you want. I've also got a blog page. I blog every week. And it's all about Be Different or Be Dead stuff. So there's, and I've been doing that since 09. Okay. My first book, Be Different or Be Dead, Your Business Survival Guide, I published in 2009, Warren. It's, this is not new stuff. And yet people nope. are going, wow, this is new stuff, which tells you maybe I didn't do a good enough job getting the message across. But the other part, so there's blogging stuff. But the other thing I just want to say to your, your listeners here is that there's also an email called roy.osing at gmail.com. And I'm really happy to have a have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with people about any of this Can you stuff. say that again just slower just so i want people to be i'm sorry roy.osing at gmail.com and i'm happy to engage with with individuals on a lot of things i have people emailing me on on their only statement roy i've drafted my only statement what do you think about this roy i got a problem in terms of of marketing what, what about this because my my experience is pretty broad so there's a lot of stuff that I can tap into for people. And I'm, I'm happy to do that because I realize at the end of the day, uh, it's that bell curve, that mass of people right underneath the bell curve. If what if we can move them 5% or yes. what if we can move them 5%? Imagine, imagine the benefits that that will create in the world. And that's, that's my goal. I think that is, boy, <laughs> we could almost go another hour just on that one. But I think that's such a, like people model too many people in, in our business of advisory work hold up the exceptions as the models. And, you know, the exception is the exception. They're not the rule. And you can't model yourself after somebody who's exceptional if, if that's not who you are. And that notion of just 5% further this way is what creates massive change rather than people yeah. chasing a dream that they can't achieve. Well, the people at the right end, the tail, right tail of the distribution curve, they're always going to be super achievers. Right. So you don't have to worry about them. The people at the other end, they're always going to be super non-achieved. OK, but the people in the middle is where the numbers are. And if you can if you can hook a lot of them to move a little, even slightly in an analog expression, I mean, it, it unleashes incredible energy and power in the universe. Yeah, yeah I should rephrase. It's not that people can't achieve their dreams, but they can't. They're not necessarily going to be not everybody's going to be Elon Musk or Richard Branson or Jeff Bezos. I, I, I heard an interview with a guy who knows Bezos well, and he says the guy is just intergalactically talented and there is no universe under any circumstances where that guy doesn't win. Yeah, and so you can't, you don't model yourself after that. Well, if you try, you're going to be nothing but disappointed, but yeah. And, and certainly for us mere mortals, there are other ways that we can have a rewarding life and, and create incredible value for others. And that's the, that's the journey that I'm on. And, and, and the, the gimmick 
is be different. Okay, that's that's the whole focus. And I and and if you look inside it, I got this notion of from from bullshit to breakaway. All right, that's where I get this thing. It's not about pivoting. It's not about you know morphing. It's about breaking away. Okay, creating a new sense of direction, creating a new fulcrum that maybe you want to pivot from, but it's not about taking what you now have and shifting to the right, shifting to the left. The notion is breaking away and if anything, backing up from that, right? So if you have that, that, that kind of like notion of completely breaking away from something and you discover through the process of trying to, trying to execute that, that, okay, there are other things that are, are causing problems. You need to step a little bit back. I'd rather have you do that. Mm-hmm. And start out in a very modest incremental way, right? But I mean, that's that's just the challenge of, of of the of the journey. But that's something that you and I can help. You and I are having this conversation because we want to make a change. We want people out there to take a piece of this and mm-hmm. try some stuff. Now, having said that, look, there's a lot more to unpack. And I'm happy to come back and have another wonderful conversation with anybody. Yeah, I think you and I could talk for three hours, but nobody can I'm listen. Pretty to sure we could. We're not, we're not the Joe Rogan podcast that can go <laughs> on for three hours. <laughs> no, but seriously, I'd be happy to do that too. Yeah. Is there any other place where people can find out about you on Twitter or LinkedIn or any of that stuff? Well, I've got all of them. If you Google me, I'm I'm out there. So I've been doing it for quite a while. So I'm on all the social media platforms, uh, even right. TikTok under under unheard of ways. Instagram is under unheard of ways. <laughs> uh, by the way, well, I got my um, my granddaughter who's uh, going to University of Victoria. I hired her as my vice president of social media. <laughs> just nice. And I said, okay, what? A, just an excuse to help her with her education fund. So she came in and helped me with Instagram and got me, you know, g- g- doing some things. And and she loved it. And and people around me loved the fact that I now have my my 21 year old involved in, in whatever this thing I'm doing is. And so it was a, was a great experience, but right yeah. on. So I'm all Listen. over social media, trying to do that as much as I can. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time and generosity and sharing your wisdom. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm, I hope people were taking notes and going to apply some of this and getting your book or books, because there's a ton of value in there that we didn't even touch on yet. Yeah. Well, thank you. And you did a tremendous job, by the way, for me. So I, I really appreciate it. And yeah, I would really encourage people go take, go check the book out. It's out there now. It's been out for two days and I'm, I'm told that it's, it's doing well, but look at, at the end of the day, for me, it's not about how much money you make on books. It's about how many people read and do something with it. That's yeah. all I'm trying to do, read and do something with it and communicate if I can be of any help. And that includes you, my friend. So thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Warren Coughlin here. Thank you so much for listening to the Business That Matters Spotlight. If you're a successful, values-driven entrepreneur who makes a difference while making a profit and you'd like to be on this program, please visit warrencoughlin.com slash podcast slash apply. That's warren, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N.com slash podcast slash apply. If you got something out of this interview, would you do us a favor and share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Business That Matters Spotlight. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. 
Want to know more? Go to our website, warrencoglin.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, facebook.com slash a business that matters, and Instagram at warren.coglin. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.